Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the 11th installment in our Ammonite Shyamalan movie review series. Today we are reviewing The Visit. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. And just to make sure we're not confused here, this is not the Nigerian film from 2015. This is the M. Night Shyamalan film from 2015, I think. Yeah, when I was logging my score, I had to, I had that option. Mm-hmm. I almost took it, but I decided to be truthful and pick the correct film. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't seen The Visit but all I know is that everyone said when it came out, I wanted to see it when it came out, which was 2015, just four years ago, I would have been uh, 20 years old. So yeah, I was 20 at the time. I definitely wanted to see it and I've always meant to see it ever since because everyone said Shyamalan's back. This is actually a genuinely creepy film. He's actually done something right for a change. Right. And I've seen this movie, I think this would be actually my third time in total seeing it, because I watched it twice in college. I know this for a fact. I remember liking it, surprisingly thinking it was something of quality. Now, the last Shyamalan movie that I had seen um, in terms of watching it chronologically would have been uh, The Happening, which I know, we all know, is not a great film. So I was thinking... We'll see, because I had heard that this was considered to be the comeback of Shyamalan, and I was curious to see if that was the case. And then from when I watched it that first time, I do remember liking it and thinking it was a pretty good, pretty spooky horror movie. Uh, so, yeah, that's been a few years. I think it may have even been 2015 when I first watched this, um, or, 20, or early 2016. Either way, it's been a while since I've seen this, so it was kind of interesting to come back to it after so many years and see how my thoughts have changed being now out of college and a more mature person than what I was when I first watched it. Uh, Shyamalan actually finally took my advice. Maybe huh. he reached into the future and decided when to release this film because thankfully this was not released during summer, which would have been this one of all would have been totally out of place yes. to release it at such a time. It was actually released September 11th, 2015, which is perfect because it's not really able, I would say, to hang with any of the big horror films of that Halloween. I don't think it should have tried to compete with those. Right. So September, like nothing comes out in September because everyone's gearing up for the holiday uh, big theatrical rush. So September is a great time to put out your film um, that especially is riding off the coattails of Halloween, um, and it doesn't belong in summer anywhere else. So this film came out in September. Wow. That's the first time this has happened. Yeah. Which is, yeah, I think, uh, like you said, pretty good time, uh, to release this movie in September. Uh, like you said, not much is really coming out. And while the budget was relatively small with $5 million, which is to be expected because this is, uh, a Blumhouse production, surprisingly enough. 
Um, this return was not too bad considering the budget we have here, which also seems to be the case with pretty much every Blumhouse production. So budget of five million, opening weekend of 25.4 million, which is not great, but once again, considering the budget, not too bad. Domestically, in total, 65.2 million, foreign 33.4 million with a worldwide total of 98.5 million. Once again, nothing great compared to what we've seen before, but considering the ratio of budget to its earnings, this is still considered a, a, uh, a win for the, for the company and for Shyamalan himself, uh, I would say. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially because Shyamalan is going off his, I believe, his lowest budget since probably Wide Awake would be my guess. He had a comp comparable budget to that. $5 million is crazy drop in budget. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't think that should be viewed as a bad thing that people don't have faith in him. This is, a f this is for all intents and purposes, a found footage film within right. the found footage genre. Those movies are made on a shoestring budget. The first Paranormal Activity was made for like, I don't know, a million dollars or a thousand dollars or something. And then it made back its budget like 10,000 times. Yeah. <laughs> something crazy like that. And that's what we're seeing here. Shyamalan is going for a small budget, a small story, a, a horror slash thriller, somewhat of a mystery, definitely character driven in many respects. And to gross nearly a hundred million dollars off a five million dollar budget, that is great. And oh yeah, I, I was shocked to see this is a Blumhouse film. Yeah, I now at this time and still kind of today, Blumhouse is kind of a powerhouse of horror. Now, whether that speaks to the quality of all the movies that they produce is a completely different matter. But from what we have seen, Blumhouse productions do seem to make back a lot of money compared to the budget that they were given. Blumhouse is known for making very small budget horror films that do great in the box office in terms of its return. So it's interesting that Shyamalan would uh, go with Blumhouse, although it's I, from what I've read, Blumhouse came late into the production or into, yeah, into the production of this film. Either way, it's interesting that Blumhouse was part of the party that helped make the visit for a director who, keep in mind, is a pretty big name, although up until this point, his name in terms of filmmaking has kind of been tainted a bit because of the projects that he's come out with in the recent years. And by this point, they did play it up in the trailer. They said from the producer of Insidious, Sinister, mm -hmm. The Purge. So Shyamalan in the trailer calls upon his uh, name dropping of from the director of the village signs, right. uh, the sixth sense, you know, uh, memorable horror films by this point that people would probably more so be looking back on fondly. And then Blumhouse is kind of the current, um, spearhead of horror and kind of marrying the two with, I think probably Shyamalan's best trailer, most accurate trailer to date. Uh, I could see why people came out and it, it made four times its budget opening weekend. So, yeah, not a, not a high opening weekend, but uh, was it number one? It actually came out as number two huh. uh, opening weekend. Uh, the Perfect Guy, which was also new that week, uh, was released at the same time. I don't think I've actually ever even heard of that movie. <laughs> um, it was number one. It came out number one. Uh, then this movie was number two. War Room was number three with also its opening weekend. And then number four was A Walk in the Woods, which has already been out for three weeks. And number five was Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, 
uh, that, was been out, that had already been out for five weeks. Next week, it went down to number three, which, which is surprising because usually his movies in the recent years have been coming out number three. Uh, Maze Runner's Court Trials came out uh, in its first week. Black Mask came out for its first week. Uh, the Perfect Guy, now at number four, was in its second week. And Everest was new that week at number five. Then week number three, it dropped on number six with Hotel Transylvania and The Intern both coming out that week. Maze Runner being number three, Everest number four, and Black Mass number five. So it did all right in the in the box office, especially in terms of his ranking and compared to other movies as well, because in previous Shyamalan movies, they started at number three and then just tanked and just dropped hard the next couple the next couple of weeks. Where this one, it kind of it did drop, yes, but it didn't drop as hard as what we've seen before. Oh yeah, that's uh, probably to be expected with this yeah. movie, how it, how it went. Um, just a bit of trivia that I just just discovered. The Perfect Guy was directed by David M. Rosenthal, who mm-hmm. just so happened to directed the remake of Jacob's Ladder, which we will be reviewing next year. Ah, uh, that's right. Ah, <laughs> so that'll be we, interesting. Yeah, we have some kind of connection to uh, the Perfect Guy. Guess so. I guess. Well, surprise, surprise! Last week's movie came in with six Razzie nominations. Um, it won oh. two. This week's movie came with one Razzie nomination. However, the Razzie nomination that it got was called the Razzie Redeemer Award, which essentially means that you have now gone beyond what is considered bad and what would be considered to be Razzie-worthy and have actually made a comparable film. Now, he didn't win it. Sylvester Stallone got the trophy for Creed, but it it did get the nomination, which is something, I guess. Yeah, that's actually kind of cool because Shyamalan was winning big at the Razzies the past few years. Yep, with all of his films, and that's cool. He, I could, I could see why he did was nominated for the Razzie Redeemer Award. Yeah. So let's get into scores. Um, much better than last time, <laughs> kind of across the board. IMDb at a six point two, which is still kind of low, but mm-hmm. is definitely not a four point eight like it was last week. Um, Metacritic at 55. Cinema score actually lower this time at a B minus, surprisingly. What? Yeah. Um, hmm. Letterbox at a three, which is above average. And then Rotten Tomatoes at a 67% critic score and a 51% audience score. A 67% critic score? Yes. Surprisingly, <laughs> surprisingly enough. It's close to fresh. It's not actually fresh, but it's close. Oh. Oh. It's still well, a, it's not rotten, it's a healthy tomato, but it's also not considered a fresh. I think fresh is like 75% or something like that. Oh, yeah. It doesn't have the seal of approval. Yes. Um, but it's it's at least a healthy, edible tomato that won't make you sick. Right. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah, those scores are huge, a huge leap um, oh, from yeah. audiences and critics. Apparently, audiences on Rotten Tomatoes, 51%, That that's considered rotten though from audiences right uh i mean they don't really have a tomato meter per se but yes it would be considered a rotten tomato if it were on the tomato meter they have like a bowl of popcorn which at this point is uh the bowl of popcorn has been spilled which means yeah. that it is a bad movie that's it that's it yeah yeah so these scores are really incredible except i'm really su- i'm actually surprised cinema score i would see it being at a b 
possibly a B plus, but not a B minus. That does surprise me. Yeah, I'm surprised that this movie is lower. It seems audience seems critics ended up liking it enough, but audiences were not as thrilled about it as the critics were. Now that's not necessarily as bad as what we've seen before with audience scores in the previous two movies. However, it's also not, I guess, high enough for me to be saying, yeah, it seems uh, from a general consensus from the audience that has seen it, this is a much better movie than what we've seen last time. It is, but at the same time, not as significant of a change that uh, I would consider, at least. One notable person that is not returning for Shyamalan for the very first time since the sixth sense, I believe, is James Newton Howard. Right. That's right. He scored pretty much every movie from the sixth sense until now uh, for yeah. every Shyamalan release, which is surprising. It makes sense, though, because yep. there is no score to this film. Right. Yeah, there's some droning sounds, but... I mean, it's nothing like you, you wouldn't need to hire James Newton Howard to do that kind of a thing. Yeah. It's very, very minimalistic when it comes to a score, like pretty much every other uh, found footage movie is. There's, I think, a little bit of something at the end of the credits, but other than that, it's pretty much just drones to heighten the tension. So yes, James Newton Howard did not return for this picture. First, so far, the first one since, once again, Sixth Sense. I would say the found footage genre was, this was probably the sunset years. This was probably when it was waning because this came out yeah. in 2015. Paranormal Activity, which kicked it off, came out in 2007. So eight years prior, we had, that genre was huge, um, especially because people could make it so cheap and right. usually reap pretty good profits. And some of them were pretty good. Um, so I would say this is Shaman's probably last crack at it before it really kind of faded off into the cultural zeitgeist. I right. don't believe we're really getting those kind of movies anymore. Right. It's interesting too, because yeah, like you mentioned, it's not like the found footage genre was booming at this time. It, like you mentioned, it was kind of going, it, the, the sun was setting on it. Things were starting to end for it, which is interesting because this movie released at a time when this was happening. So it's it's strange that Shyamalan would be more or less late to a party on this one where he's taking up a, a filmmaking type to present his film when the filmmaking, when that style of filmmaking is absolutely going out of style at this point, which has really only been a style yeah, since about 2007. That was, it was Paranormal Activity that really made it popular to do found footage for horror movies. And then of course, it didn't last very long. It lasted a couple years and then now it's completely died out. Um, are we ready for the, the bot? Yeah, I guess so. There, I looked up background info. There isn't much <laughs> outside of bum houses on it. The working title was Sundowning. Um, it apparently, oh, here's a little bit of a fun fact, I guess. Shaman had issues trying to find the tone. And at one point, apparently it resembled an art house film. Um, what? I don't know where he came with that. I don't know how that came about, but that's what <laughs> Wikipedia says. So whatever, I'll go with it. I don't necessarily see where that fits in, but that mm. is a thing, apparently. Yeah. This also seems like Shyamalan returning to kind of a fairy tale in a way. Yeah. To me, this film very much resembles Hansel and Gretel mm. uh, going so far as the girl in the oven. Uh, no spoilers yet. That's not a spoiler. 
it's kind of hinted at in the trailer. So yeah, they those days in the trailer, I remember that much. But uh huh, yeah. And so to me, this seems like Shyamalan kind of going back to a little bit of that fairy tale ness that we got with Lady in the Water. But you'll also notice he didn't go with the R rating for this film. Right. I think he this film is pushing the PG thirteen at least in my book. Yeah, this is kind of him going back to style just kind of in general because, yeah, with his first few movies, he does, while they are still PT-13, they are pushing it. They're pushing that rating, getting relatively close to an R. Yeah, they do the same thing here. This movie does push it a bit to that R rating, but still PG-13, according to the MPAA. Which is really great, and I think that's also probably um, a factor as to why it did so well at the box office Mm -hmm. is because it appealed to so many people. It looked legitimately scary, and it, it seemed pretty interesting the idea of a modern day Grimm's fairy tale of visiting your grandparents right. with your found footage camera, you get to document all of it and they're kind of psycho and something is wrong with them. He doesn't, doesn't lean into the supernatural or, uh, and he, he doesn't go into the fantasy realm as he did with lady in the water right. or, um, the sixth sense or unbreakable or anything like that. This is probably, his most realistic film since The Village, um, yeah. which we did review The Village as well. So I did forget to mention that listeners, check out the link in the description below. That will take you to our page where we have reviewed all of Emmett Shyamalan's previous 10 films. So I highly recommend that you do listen to those because it is interesting to see how our thoughts ebb and flow and the the chronology of how they shift over time because he does have some great films and he has some stinkers there's there's no secret about that yep um and i also want to mention that if you are interested in getting more uh, movie reviews from me just written reviews or just curious that about what i'm watching during the week then go ahead and follow me on letterboxd um I, i believe my username is corbin riley or uh c riley 95 if you type that in you'll find it but yeah definitely follow me on letterbox and we can um talk about more movies over there you can see what i'm up to but other than that alan go ahead and give them the plot summary um but of course spoilers ahead becca and tyler played by olivia uh de jong i think is how you say that and Ed Oxenbold, respectively, are siblings from Philadelphia, living with their single mother not long after a divorce. Mom, played by Catherine Hahn, is headed with her boyfriend on a cruise, and the plan is to leave her kids with her with her parents, their grandparents, who no one has seen since Mom had a fight with them many years ago uh, and left in a huff. Due to this, the kids decide to document this entire week and edit it into a documentary. The grandparents, played by Deanna Dunnigan and Peter McRobbie, uh, pick up Becca and Tyler from the train station and they head towards their house. All is well until that night when Becca sees Nana vomiting at the bottom of the stairs. The next day, Pop Pop explains that Nana is sick and that a curfew should be put in place since they are old people. However, things with the grandparents continue to get weirder as the nights of the week go on. Tyler finds a stash of dirty diapers in a shed out back. Nana plays hide-and-seek with them under the house and scares the two kids. And not to mention, nightly there are noises that continue to happen outside their door. A few people come by who knew the grandparents from a psychiatric hospital they down the road that they used to help out with. And they say that they haven't seen their grandparents in a while and would like to talk to them. But they are conveniently missing every time they come out. 
Becca and Tyler decide to hide a camera in the living room and to hopefully capture the goings-on at night. The next day, to their horror, they find that something is terribly wrong with Nana as she grabs a knife from the kitchen and takes the camera they hid upstairs and tries to break into the kids' room. Becca and Tyler Skype their mom and show her Nana and Pop-Pop in the back. Mom becomes confused and tells them to leave the house immediately as the Nana and Pop-Pop the kids have been staying with is not their grandparents at all. However, the kids get trapped inside the house as the grandparents decide to play a family game of Yahtzee. Becca is able to sneak away into the basement, a part of the house the kids were told is off-limits due to mold. Down there, Becca finds her dead grandparents before Pop-Pop sneaks up behind her and throws her into the same room as Nana, locking the door behind him. Becca is, uh, Becca is able to defend herself with a broken shard of glass when Nana, escape, when, Nana, when Nana attacks and is able to escape the room. Meanwhile, Pop-Pop tor- torments Tyler by smashing his face into one of his soil diapers. Becca is here to save the day and pulls Pop-Pop away from Tyler. Tyler reverts to his football ways and shoves Pop-Pop into the countertop and slams his head in the fridge, killing them both. Becca and Tyler run outside to meet the police and their mother, who are taken, who are, th- are then taken back home. The visit ends with Mom deciding to do an interview, telling Becca not to live in anger. And as the credits roll, Tyler freestyles for us, like he did with, in the opening with the conductor and like he did for Nana. Maybe this just shows I don't have a very good memory, but I guess I didn't realize the whole movie was found footage. Yeah, it's weird because I'm kind of with you on that one. It feels, especially after walking away from it, that some of this almost feels like it's your typical kind of horror, your typical movie. But in reality, it's all found footage. Yeah, which I kind of have a problem with. I don't want to get too off into the weeds and too nitpicky with it. But how are we watching this documentary? Are we just supposed to take it at face value? There's one moment in the movie where um, the shot is cutting back and forth. And I'm... um, And they're both static shots of the kids talking on the computer with their mom. And I almost thought Shyamalan like forgot we were supposed to only see things from the camera's point of view. Right. And we're, and we're just getting regular cuts. Those cuts kind of took me out of it. But like I said, I don't want to get too nitpicky. You kind of have to uh, secede that when you watch a found footage film that you're going to be watching from the camera's point of view. I will say these kids have really high quality cameras like and their mom's a sales associated Walmart. Like maybe they saved up money. I don't know. I'm not judging, but right. Yeah, I know the DSLR that they have apparently was found (laughs) in some bin somewhere. Apparently, if I remember the line correctly, the other one I believe was a was a gift or something. But yes, they have pretty good cameras for kids of their age. I would say Um, I can maybe understand a DSLR. I don't know if I can, I might be able to buy this smaller camcorder that they have. But yeah, what they have here is <laughs> really good hardware. Uh, there are scenes that you can kind of tell they're not actually using the right, the camera that they were given. <laughs> I, I kind of felt like I was watching the beginning of Jurassic World actually with this, which clearly came out afterwards. But yeah. the the two kids are going to... Uh, stay with an estranged relative and it will become a horrifying experience. Literally the same setup right. for both films. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 but I mean, beyond that though, there's nothing much that connects them either. So No, except Bryce Dallas Howard who starred in two of Night Shyamalan movies. Therefore, everything is connected. Ah, of course. <laughs> Anyways, um, starting with the positives here, 
Uh, I do like these two siblings. I think they have really great chemistry and believability as they're like, they could actually be siblings. I think they're really likable. And I think the way Shyamalan presents everything of uh, the grandparents reached out to the mom and they want to see their grandkids again. I'm a little, um, I guess uh, it's hard for me to believe a little bit that the mom would drop these two kids off by themselves with her grandparent with her parents that she hasn't uh, been in contact with for 15 years that's a little bit of a give me there but regardless i'm buying all of this and i'm actually i'm pretty interested in where this movie's going to go yeah surprisingly and even now i'm saying this you do bring up a good an interesting point at least that the kids feel believable because Getting into what I've done as a kid, and it kind of morphed into something a bit different here as more as an adult. Um, me and my cousins used to do almost this exact same thing when we were kids with our at our grandparents' house. We'd always film little videos when we were all together at my grandparents' house, which had happened almost every summer. Uh, so it was kind of inter interesting to see this movie take on that same kind of persona as something that I used to do when I was a kid. And I would be lying if I said that I didn't act like Tyler and or uh, Becca in this movie in some fashion when we did these films. Because I was mostly the one who was behind the camera filming everything, whereas, whereas my cousins and brother were the ones who were acting. Now, and so it's, it's an interesting idea to take this concept that I grew up with and then make that into a horror film where the grandparents are not your typical grandparents uh, and we come to find out they aren't their grandparents at all. Uh, it's an interesting concept and I'm kind of going along with it. And I think that's what drew me to it originally was this idea that was so closely rely, so closely tied with my childhood of thing that I just used to do all the time with my cousins and family. Yeah. And whether you, whether you grew up with siblings or cousins or not, I think you can at least relate to what it's like to be a kid and, they're just saying funny things like I'm going to quit cursing. I'm going to start saying uh, pop star names, which I, right. I really found to be hilarious. And um, probably also just they, they want to go play hide and seek under the house. Not something I would do. Uh, <laughs> I guess the closest I've ever gotten to that is around Christmas. Uh, my family, we play what we call the dollar game in my grandparents basement. My grandparents' basement, their house is well over 100 years old. So it's a super creepy, old, dank basement. Um, that's, that's, that's as far as I have gotten to, to anything like that. But right. nevertheless, just I think Shyamalan does a great job um, capturing at least what it's like to be a kid and also capturing what it's like to kind of interact with estranged relatives because – Speaking from a personal standpoint, I do have relatives that are estranged from me, and I would say that's a very realistic take on that. And then also wanting to know about your past, the desire we all have to know where we came from, and then right. the, these roadblocks that these kids hit. Um, now there's a good explanation for, for why there's a roadblock. But nevertheless, Shyamalan is at least establishing, I would say, a very real inviting um a very connective world here yeah and it's pretty i'll even say this is another positive i honestly really like this twist where the grandparents nana and pop up that we see throughout this entire movie surprise surprise 
isn't the grand aren't the grandparents at all. They come to find out they met the grandparents probably through the psychiatric hospital that they work at. And then once they found out that the grandkids are coming over at some point, they infiltrated the house and killed the grandparents and kind of took over this persona as the kids' grandparents. It's kind of a give me that there weren't red flags set up any time before the kids showed up to meet the grandparents, like nobody knew what they looked like or whatever. But it is an interesting idea that the grandparents, this is how the movie creates fear, is taking this thing that's supposed to be very warm and inviting and very safe and turning it on its head. I think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting twist. I, I honestly do really like the twist. And it's interesting too, because we're actually getting a twist this time. We haven't had that for a few movies where yeah. Shaman seems to have gone away from the label of Mr. Twist and is now coming back to that. Where before with the last few movies, we haven't had any, uh, Roy had any, any twist at all. But now of course we have twist that essentially redefines how you look at the whole movie like we have in time past. Yeah, we haven't had a twist since The Village. And that's Shyamalan consistently became known for the Shyamalan twist. How was this movie right. going to just turn everything on its head, pull the rug out from under you, make you reevaluate everything you just watched? And he does. He brings it back here and he does an absolutely great job of doing that because when the kids get on the call with their mom, they're like, you know, they're kind of, these grandparents are kind of weird. They're kind of acting odd. And she's like, oh, you know, they were hippies and they used to like sunbathe naked or something. So, you know, and they're getting older. And when they each bring up, bring up the things to each other, the grandparents always have a pretty realistic explanation as to their bizarre activities. And I, I always bought everything except for some things were becoming so unbelievable that I'm like, okay, these people have to be insane in some way. And these kids are in harm's way. Right. Um, and the first genuinely frightening moment you, that at least I felt was when they were playing hide and seek under the house and the grandma was acting deranged towards them uh, running around. I was like, oh man, that actually um, kind of gets me, but I didn't see the twist coming. So when I'm watching the film, and uh, they take the computer and the boy shows them the grandparents and she says, that's not your grandparents. My jaw dropped and I love those kind of twists where you just come to um, believe these like kind of pre-established facts. And then when you learn they're completely false, um, that's when like the real fear sets in. Uh, fantastic job with that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, and like I said, the, I really do enjoy the twist in this movie, and it seems like a lot of critics do as well. And one of the theories I have with this film is not necessarily uh, what it ends up saying in the end, where the, the message of the movie is don't live in anger, right? We find out that Becca is very much angry at her dad for leaving, right? And it seems, and clearly it affects these kids. Both of them feel as if it is their fault that their dad left them. When in reality, it might not even be the case. Uh, it, mom says that he ran off with some clerk at, at, at Starbucks, yep. um, which that might be the whole reason in, in and of itself. What happened with that and why that happened is not really explained through the movie. But what I think is interesting here is with the grandparents, because there is this constant uh, excuse as to why they act the way that they do called sundowning, which is brought up in the movie uh, about essentially the grandparents of this uh of these of this family or supposed grandparents they seem to change their personalities seem to completely differ 
when the sun starts to go down. And that's why they put a curfew in place. So it, I wonder to me if it's more of a childhood, if it's more of a child's um, perception of maybe even seeing their grandparents or, or grandparent or grandparents slowly devolve as dementia starts to take over their life. Because that's what sound dunning is, sound dunning is, is when a when dementia takes over and starts to really affect the brain, sound dunning, sound dunning becomes more of a thing where they become more confused as, as the sun goes down. So it's an interesting theory to me to think that maybe this film, in a roundabout kind of way, is a story about how these kids are seeing and per, and perceiving and living out living with their grandparents over many years even though this film they're estranged living over, over many years where they get to see their their grandparents kind of devolve as their brain deteriorates i think that's an interesting theory that i was thinking about i was watching this movie for like the third or fourth time those those types of like premises are i think the scariest because they always hit closest to home is when yeah. it involves either the home setting or a family member or something that should be safe and familiar. We recently just reviewed Black Christmas for our Halloween special, and that takes place within a refuge from the elements. But little do we know that that's the exact opposite place you want to be in. And I, I agree. I don't think we've really had too many horror films exploring um, kids staying with grandparents and then the grandparents are crazy. I would say most people have an experience staying with either a, a grandparent or both grandparents. And, uh, I, I have fond memories of staying with my grandma, for instance. Um, and then to take something that recalls, uh, hopefully a warm childhood memory and then to, really make it into a frightening scenario and a baffling one, I think is a great idea and really does play upon realistic fears. Um, right. He doesn't go supernatural or anything like that. And I think he does a good job of unfolding um, the time spent with them or no, I don't mean to say that. I think he does a good job of unfolding increasingly how crazy they're becoming and how it's all going to come to a head. Um, one of my criticisms, though, is that I do think he takes too long with with the days. Um, I actually found it to be somewhat boring um, for most of the movie. I, I think about the midpoint, I really felt like Shyamalan needed to either pick up the pace or um, kind of cut down on the creepy moments. I think he had an over-reliance on creepy moments, but I will say at almost 40 minutes in it feels like the movie's taking a bit too long yeah it, i'll agree with you on that it does and especially this movie too kind of how last time i said after earth felt a lot like a generic hollywood sci-fi movie this one is also that same way with horror movies it feels like a not all of it but the general sense of it feels like it's paced in, like an edited and shot like a generic found footage Hollywood horror movie because they're typically very slow. They're typically building that tension over a period of a longer time, but always seem to stay within the hour and a half runtime. This is one of those movies where I feel it still has some cliche elements to it. And maybe, and that also is due to the fact that it is a found footage movie, a, a genre filled with cliches and has since died out because no one could really, there isn't much innovation in that field in that, or in that filmmaking style. So yeah, 
Although I think, although I like some of the concepts in this movie and some of the thing, some of the theories that one can have with it, like I mentioned just a, bit, just a second ago, I think that it's still riding on more cliches than what Shyamalan has, I guess, been known for by breaking those cliches or maybe even just making a more original story from the beginning. This is a, an original screenplay, but in terms of how Shyamalan takes that screenplay and makes it original on the screen is a bit different than what we've seen before. And with all of Shyamalan's previous films, he's always kept us in the dark as to the true nature of what's actually going on. And I felt like in the previous films, that's always worked because we really didn't know better, nor did we really need to know better. Whereas I don't think that quite works as well as this is because there are such strange events happening that uh, we need to know, we need to have like at least some kind of hook as to uh, what's possibly going on and where this is leading to. But he wants to keep us so in the dark and the twist so spoiler three throughout throughout the whole film that I got to a certain point where I thought, this this movie is just nonsensical. Shyamalan forgot to write in an explanation as to why the grandparents are acting like this or as to why the granddaughter keeps asking the grandma um, about the mom. Don't do that. It upsets her. But yet she, she did it like two or three times. Yeah. Anyways, um, but my point is that I did feel that uh, we were probably kept in the dark too long but uh, I mean, what do you think, Alan? Do you, do you see what I'm trying to say here? Oh, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think the problem is with at least the last, with the Shaman's trilogy, where, you know, you have the twists that are in those movies that define those movies. Uh, the problem here with this execution of the twist is that we're searching for answers from the beginning, right? Whereas with those movies beforehand, we never knew that we wanted those yep. answers until the movie presents that twist at the very That's end. It. And then it changes our whole perception of what the movie was beforehand. So I think the problem here with this movie is how it presents its twist. Not, not, not how it presents it, but how it builds up to, how it builds up to presenting that twist. Because essentially we have a grandparents who are acting really strange and there aren't very many, there aren't there aren't any answers being given to us and the ones that are given to us are kind of bogus and we can tell when we know that they're bogus and then when the film gives us oh here's the answer uh, they're crazy uh, here's what actually happened to the grandparents it doesn't have as much impact i feel as what happened with at least the original trilogy th that trilogy of shaman movies and even the village for uh, in that fact where the twist is there but it's not something that we were searching for and then when it's there, it completely changes our perception of what we've been seeing so far up until that point. That's absolutely right. That's exactly what I was trying to say. And I do think the problem of that is it stunts the rest of the storytelling because it's, I mean, it's almost kind of like when we're podcasting, we have to wait for the spoiler break to talk about certain things. So we're limited by what we can explore and talk about before the spoiler warning. And I would right. say that is where Shyamalan runs into the roadblock here with this film is that he's waiting for the spoiler warning because he really can't give anything away. It, nor does he really even try to tease much out two people come to their house asking for their grandparents. And that really doesn't raise any red flags for us. The only time a red flag is raised is when this lady does come back and she's trying to speak with the grandparents and they're getting into some kind of argument. And we briefly sing, see her body 
hanging from a tree there towards right. the end. But there's really nothing um, like truly unsettling. Like what if these aren't their grandparents or what has happened to these grandparents aside from he, he tries to substitute that with like realistic explanations. And ultimately after a while, that just gets kind of boring to me, uh, which right. is kind of disappointing. But um, on a more positive note, I do think this is a really frightening climax. And I was I was on edge actually during this climax when they separate the the daughter and the son with each grandparent. The grandpa puts his poopy diaper in that kid's face. Oh my gosh, that really got to me. And then the girl with the grandma who that lady's already does a great job being creepy. Um, I think the climax is great. Yeah, I think the climax is pretty well handled. My thoughts on this movie as a whole have definitely changed since I, when I first watched it, but this climax, I think still does a very interesting job uh, where it's kind of, I guess kind of some irony, but essentially the kids are the ones who end up becoming the murderers, not the other way around, because the intention was to, uh, for the grandparents to take in these kids and then eventually kill them. Um, But it, of course, takes that idea and turns it around um, there uh, during this climax. So, yeah, I think that there are some interesting things here. It's interesting that the kids be are the ones who become the murderer or the kids are the ones who do the killing in the end, not the other way around. I think it's also a, they do a pretty good job at kind of building to this point where you know that uh, their bedtime is 930. But then that moment hits where it's past 930 and the grandparents still aren't going to bed and they're not pushing the kids off. That's where I think it starts to become unsettling after the twist has already been revealed because why are they staying up willingly past 930? But then that also brings the question, why didn't they just do this earlier? What is stopping them from waiting until now to do something about these kids and ends up and what their plan is to kill them. Why do that? Why do they wait until now to do that and not earlier in the week? Uh, the only explanation I can think of is the grandpa at the end says, your grandma has been waiting for this. She deserves a good weekend with her grand with her grandkids because she murdered her own. So she deserves time with you. So it does seem like they do want to have this experience, but then in Hansel and Gretel-like fashion, they do want to murder them. Uh, another on-edge moment was when the granddaughter was crawling into the oven and then the, the grandma shuts it and I knew that was coming. And I, I really was on edge about that. I guess yeah. the one thing that is a little hard to believe is these kids are incredibly curious and they are doing things to satisfy their curiosity. But I'm thinking they're not doing enough, it, enough soon enough is what I'm trying to say yeah. is because the grandpa, they, there's all kinds of red flags and weird things going on and they're very hesitant to search some things, but then at the same time, they're not hesitant, but it takes to the climax of the film for the granddaughter to go into the basement. I mean, you're telling me they're they're not ex- trying to explore parts of the house after a while that were off limits. It's a little yeah. hard to believe, I think. And it, did the grandpa say that there's like some kind of a mold or black mold in the basement? Yeah, he's his excuse to get them to not go into the basement was that the basement has mold. That was his excuse. But being a kid, 
there would be nothing that would stop me from going down to that basement if I'm curious to see what's down there. Right. It doesn't seem, especially when those, when people come by and the grandparents are mysteriously missing, what would be stopping me from going down into the basement at that moment? It's it's so weird. We know, okay, we find out later that the grandparents are down there, but why keep the grandparents down there? Why not take them and bury them somewhere on their farm, which they clearly have? It's, I don't know. It's, it's weird that this movie brings us up to light where well, it's there i mean for foreshadowing of course but it doesn't really work very well into the script that we have here i don't think i do think there are some nice character moments at least in this movie which have been lacking from previous Shyamalan films these ones that i feel are actually genuine such as when the okay first it begins with the sister asking the brother don't you miss dad and he's saying, no, I don't. People move on and you find somebody else to love. Clearly, he's covering up. And I think he does a good job of, of that. And I think that's realistic. And then the brother, in almost cruel fashion, presses his sister on how she has these really uh, intense self-image issues because she doesn't have a father to build that confidence up in her and love her. And she begins crying. And I, I was actually like pretty touched by that moment. And I really thought that was a realistic exploration of broken family dynamics. And then, of course, in the horror genre, you have to really mangle and twist them even further and then come to realize that their grandparents are dead and these people that, that they have grandparents want to murder them. So I think those character moments worked well. I just think that Shyamalan gets too confused, trying to balance tons of creepy moments, trying to build our interest, losing our interest, and then trying to play in character moments as well. And then these interviews with grandparents, which I think go on too long and don't really go anywhere. Yeah, I think my main criticism of this movie is honestly how it presents its message. I'm not saying as much as, I'm not saying its message is bad, but I think the way that it presents it is weird because the main message of this movie is you sh in reality you probably should try at least try to repair a relationship with any kind of person that is oh that is that's something that's happened with in this case it's the grand mom and the grandparents and with becca's in becca's case it's her and her father you should come to a point where you can forgive that person in or and then begin to try and hopefully repair that relationship right that's kind of what the what the movie is trying to say. The problem is that happens in the beginning 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes. And everything in between that is essentially just horror. It's building intention and trying to get to this twist that the grandparents aren't actually their grandparents. That's what this middle part of this movie does. And it's weird because there are moments in here where we do have some character development where we find out that Becca kind of holds this uh, anger towards her father be, uh, for leaving them. But we don't really get much exploration or really too much of uh, an arc for that until the very end of the movie when her mom tells her not to live in, not to live in anger. I would like the, this movie to explore those ideas more in this movie where we, because the, clearly we're supposed to, the kids are there to hopefully mend the relationship between their mom and the grandparents that they're staying with. The problem is at this point, the grandparents are already dead. And we've been a lot of movie where there is no development of the message hardly at all. 
And I feel like that just is a waste of time when it comes to what the movie ultimately is, ultimately is trying to say. Yeah, and that, that ties back to what I was saying is Shyamalan is more so concerned about surprising the audience, which stunts the development of the story because the story really can't develop with those kind of thematic issues because we're, we're supposed to be kept in the dark. And he tries right. to do some of that, like I was just mentioning, but I am disappointed that the precedence of the twist takes more so place over really fleshing out these thematic elements. And I think he could have done a better job of giving us more questions as to the identity of these grandparents. I know he could have done that, but once again, yeah. he's more so concerned with just the twist and the horror elements, I would say. Um, but yeah. I do, I do really Absolutely. love that part at the end where the mom comes clean to her kids about how, how the circumstance all went down and she's the mom basically says, don't you need to forgive before it's too late. And then she includes the footage of her dad, which is something she didn't want to do at all. Right. I liked that part. I liked that redemptive arc of forgiveness. Right. And uh, kind of going back to characters, too. Uh, Tyler kind of feels like he's only here for comic relief. I don't really see where his arc comes into play or what lesson he needs to learn. We get some character development where he we discover he does have he does blame himself a little bit for his dad leaving. But we never really see him come to terms with that or learn something from that. I think his character is completely wasted here outside of being used for comic relief, which even then at some points in the movie honestly feel kind of embarrassing to me because the raps that he comes up with uh which is mo mostly the main part main portion of the comic relief here are kind of cringy and <laughs> are really uh i guess white would be the best way of uh, putting it um i wish they would have done more with this character because i feel like he's only there for comic relief and some uh and some character development he is there to kind of be somewhat of a foil with the sister just because he gets on her nerves all the time. But other than that, his character, I feel like it's just completely wasted. Yeah, it is wasted. He, I mean, sure. He is nice comic relief. The rapping was cute at first. Ultimately I thought it became obnoxious when it became a recurring thing that I really was just like, okay, we need to put this aside. Why in the world do you even care about rapping to begin with? I don't think he's ever really given a strong point as to why that's something he does and why he wants to be called T diamond. Yeah. I don't know. Once again, we're, we're supposed to just really be dropped into the family's lives and not really have a lot of pre-establishment as to some of those inner workings. But I would totally agree that talking about how not missing dad and he's, he's a big boy. He's moved on from that. That doesn't pay off. That seems to really just be dropped and we're, the sister's emotional context with it is supposed to be enough, but it's equally important to explore a kid not growing up without a dad. And he needs to have some, some kind of defining character trait as to a problem. The sister won't look at herself in the mirror. He doesn't really seem to have much of a confidence issue. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I totally agree. There's really no character arc for him. So he's definitely the most, uh, the character that I'm let down by the most within this movie. But overall, I'll say this before we get to our conclusion here. I don't seem to be caring too much about 
any of these characters per se. Yeah. The yeah. mom on her Caribbean cruise seems to just be utterly pointless whenever we cut back to her. All she does is give this honestly not very good performance about how much she misses her kids. And then I will say I was, I kind of feel like I had whiplash when the boy is like, we need to be honest with mom about what's going on here. And then the sister convinces him to not talk about it. But then all of a sudden, like a day or two later, the girl is like, mom, you need to come get us. You need to drive and come get us. Like our lives are in danger. And it's like, yeah. what? Where did this come from all of a sudden? Uh, but ultimately, I don't really care too much about these characters. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think I think that's because, uh, honestly, the message that is here is not told to us really until the end. There's some pieces yes. here and there, and that really hurts when you're trying to develop characters, yep. uh, which they don't really do too much in this movie at, at all. You get some moments there about 45 minutes to the end where the the uh, brother and sister do have more realistic moments with each other, and they do reveal their fa their feelings toward their father. But that's like the only time that I feel like there is significant character growth. The, everything else here is either just exploring the character or doing hardly anything at all, except maybe even building tension and building horror. I think that, yeah, unfortunately, the characters here are rather weak. Um, there really isn't anything that like super defines them um, or explores their character to a level that makes them feel almost like real characters. I'm not saying this movie is necessary. I'm not going to criticize this movie for being too shallow because I think it is interesting that the character reasons, the reasons for these characters to have their resentment or feelings towards their father are rather uh, shallow is because they are kids and that makes sense. Um, I think though, it unfortunately, the characters that are, that are defined here aren't as fleshed out as they probably could have been uh, for this movie, which I feel like would have really helped it especially in the ending, especially in the climax, when their lives are literally in danger. Um, whereas with me, when I, especially when I watched this for the most recently, I didn't really feel like there was much that I had to be afraid of for their characters, even if I hadn't seen it for the first time, because their characters aren't really fleshed out at all in this movie. Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for The Visit? I think The Visit is an interesting film, not by what it talks about or how it talks about things, but just by what the film even could have been. Even some theories that I have or that I mentioned earlier, or even my emotional attachment to some degree of this movie to connecting to my childhood. I think that's very interesting. And unfortunately, uh, that's really about as far as it goes. I think that this movie's... Uh, target audience is not Corbin and I. I think it's definitely meant for children who are the ages of these main characters, absolutely. Um, that, I feel like this movie would scare them. Not me. I don't think this movie is really all that scary. And in fact, like Corbin said, I found it to be some kind of boring, especially since I knew what I was getting into. I've seen this movie before. This is not my first rodeo with this film. Uh, I would have liked for this movie to go deeper with its characters, go deeper with what it's with this message. Go tell me. I feel like it's wasting time by not getting to the root of the problem that is these, especially the main character, the sister having resentment towards her father. The message of the movie doesn't come up until the very end and they don't ever really explore that for a good chunk of the film, which is weird to me. Um, is it a good film? It's fine. It's got good qualities, but 
I wouldn't consider it a good film, mostly on the merit that everything that it tries to do it either does poorly or it's just already been done a thousand times over because this is a fun footage film and there are a lot of questions raised as to how was this movie edited? By whom was it edited? Why did they shoot this? Things of that typical found footage questions that I send that I tend to always have when watching those kinds of movies. So at the end of the day, uh, no, I'm not going to recommend it, but I'll give it a five out of 10 still not going to be recommended for me though. There was a time when I was, I don't know, halfway through the movie that or a little beforehand, I was wishing I was watching it on VLC and I could put it at like one and a half times speed just to get through some of those moments that really, when you look back on it, were fairly empty and did feel like filler. Right. But that being said, Shyamalan is back. The visit is his best film since the village. The cast is strong, the suspense is just right, and the twist knocks the story out of the park. Unfortunately, there's not enough meat to sustain the 90-minute runtime. Each day is far too long, we're not even 30 minutes in, and I'm already checking the clock. If Shyamalan could have kept either a tighter pace or given us more intriguing character hooks, instead of simply relying on continually creepy moments, this would have been a stronger film. The Visit is a good film in many ways, and one of the best of the found footage genre. Alas, there's not enough here for me to recommend it or even to rewatch it. Five stars out of 10, very mild, not recommend. I will say personally, this is my favorite. I believe it's my favorite film of his since The Village. Yeah, I'll agree with you on that one. This is one that I feel I could watch again and not be as bored by it or as mad by it by previous movies that we've oh, reviewed. Sure. Yeah, and plus, I mean, I've already seen this movie three times now. I've watched it twice in college and now I'm watching it again here, and I don't feel as if I couldn't watch it again. I think that that's a, a good point to bring up is while I still give it a five and not recommend, I don't, it's not a movie that I would never watch again. If it, if somebody wanted to watch it, sure, I guess we can watch it, but I wouldn't be <laughs> like, no, I'll never watch that movie again kind of feelings towards some of these other, some of these other movies like Last Airbender. Yeah, and Shyamalan had a pretty quick turnaround, though, because the visit, small budget, probably not a long production time, post-production at all, came out in 2015. But it wasn't very long until Shyamalan came back to cinemas, only 15 months, not two years. Like, uh, usually it took a, at least 24 months, sometimes 36 months to get a new Shyamalan film. Shyamalan came back in a record breaking 15 months from the time of September 2015 to January 2017 with his film Split, which I'm going to go ahead and say it now because it's it's out in the open, is actually a sequel, his very first sequel he's ever done to Unbreakable, which I knew blew a lot of people's minds. To begin with, it didn't blow Alan and I's minds because we hadn't seen Unbreakable yet. <laughs> Well, I had actually seen Unbreakable, but I already oh, knew the twist had? going into it, so it oh, was okay. no surprise. <laughs> okay, well, I guess just me then. I had no idea what was going on in the end of Split anyway. And I'm like, what's this Unbreakable movie about? <laughs> Little did I know. Okay, we're going to talk about it next week, listeners. Yes. But I'm actually very excited to talk about Split. I'm curious to see what my thoughts are, because I've watched it recently. So I'm curious to see if anything's changed since then. Uh, well, I guess we'll see. 
We did watch it recently. I've seen it at least twice now. So this will be my third viewing. And if my opinion still holds, I'm going to put on the SSG goggles to really scrutinize the film and everything. But if my opinion still holds, I think we're really in for a treat for this next film. That's just a little teaser as to uh, what's coming up next week, listeners. So, Alan, thank you for joining me. Sure thing. Listeners, we want to know what you think of The Visit. Um, when did, did you see this movie when you were a teenager, when it first came out, or were you an older adult that had been with all the Shyamalan movies before? Do you think this is the beginning of Shyamalan's comeback? And we want to know, is this a genuinely good found footage horror movie? We're interested to know what you think because we love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you. So go ahead and comment down below, whether you're on Facebook or Podbean or Twitter, you can tweet at us, you can send us an email. Uh, we're definitely curious to know what you think about uh, this movie. So once again, listeners, we will see you next week with Split. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. And as the credits roll, Tyler freestyles for us like he did in the opening with the conductor for Nina. Oh, hang on. I need to reread the last sentence. <laughs> <laughs>